All right, everyone. It's me, Brom. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's guest is Will Padilla-Brown, also known as Permaculture Poppy on Instagram, one of the best Instagram names that I've uh, come across. Kind of jealous of it, honestly. Uh, he's the founder of Mycosymbiotics. Is that how you pronounce it? Is that the right way to say it? Mycosymbiotics. Yeah, Mycosymbiotics, yeah. Symbiotics and certified, which is a streetwear brand that has some really cool mushrooms, psychedelic, and consciousness themed clothes. Will, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. 100%, man. So, I mean, I want to get into like your background and a bunch of specific stuff, but one question that just kind of came to mind was it seems like mushrooms in a lot of ways are kind of having this cultural moment. And so are psychedelics, but psychedelics and mushrooms are, you know, two related, but not necessarily the same things. And I get why psychedelics are kind of having a moment because they were illegal for a long time and now these laws are changing and you know they might become more legal but how come it's how come people have been sleeping on mushrooms for so long like most of these functional mushrooms and gourmet mushrooms they were never illegal or anything but now all of a sudden it seems like they're super hot and everyone's talking about them they're showing up in all sorts of products like is there something about just like where culture's at that makes now the time for mushrooms like why do you think they're having their moment now well um i think there's a couple reasons and you know mushrooms are super big in uh the eastern countries and you know we say eastern countries but like we live in north america so the countries that are east of us are like africa and in europe so like when we say the east and the west we're talking like we still are like european like colonizer peoples um so like that's just something to keep in mind but like as far as like the sake of common contemporary language goes, um, the Eastern cultures have been having a relationship with mushrooms for a significant period of time longer than um, the Western cultures or the English speaking or Latin uh, based speaking cultures. Um, although some European cultures do have some um, in-depth um, uh, uh, anthropological history of, of foraging wild mushrooms. Um, I think it's more of the English speaking cultures that um, demonized mushrooms. Um, um, there was a lot of demonization of the of mushrooms in, um, in the Catholic traditions um, and associations with like, um, you know, the, like bad spirits or pagan traditions or um, uh, things of this nature. So um, if you if you even look at some like old depictions of mushrooms, you'll see them with like skulls or like little gremlins around them and things like that um so to some and then to uh, uh a lot of people did believe that mushrooms were like poisonous or or toxic or something like that um so to some extent i feel like there was a um people were deterred to that end um and then also just like lack of information and lack of knowledge um i do think that a lot of um the western civilization or the western culture um, is uh, uh, puts a big emphasis on controlling nature, um, you know, through agriculture, through you know, uh, controlling our environment in the houses that we live in, and and uh, damming up the rivers and and all these kinds of things. Um, uh, so I think that we've just been negligent of of the smaller things in in nature because we found the big shiny parts of nature like the big things that can burn really hot or can, you know, um, uh, extract lots of sugar from or extract lots of drugs from and things like this. Um, so 
uh, I think that we've just ne- neglected the little things. And then I also think that, uh, um, you know, mush- mushroom cultivation is fairly new um, in, in Western culture. It was, um, it was mostly brought to North, American, um, North America by um, some Italian florists um, that visited back to Europe while um, the French and the Italians were developing mushroom cultivation from, you know, the catacombs to the horse barns and things like this. Um, and those techniques were brought over to eastern Pennsylvania. Um, and then in more recent history, we have some of the, um, you know, great mycologists of the past um, uh, couple decades um, had gone out in like the 60s and 70s to uh, China um, Japan and other Asian countries and, and glean techniques from them. Um, so we've been mostly used to these button mushrooms, which were the first mushrooms cultivated out here in North America. A lot of them were canned or nasty and um, a lot of people didn't really know how to cook them or deal with them. So a lot of people's experiences with, with mushrooms as a kid may have been like really gross. Um, so I think that's another thing that's deterred more uh, people in contemporary history. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, I, I don't know if I mentioned it or not, but I'll just throw it out there just in case I didn't, that mycology has only been recognized as a science since 1969. Whoa, really? Before, yeah. Before that, um, mushrooms were classified as non-flowering plants. Um, so I think that our understanding of them has been very, very limited. That's kind of, I had no idea that it was that recent. So basically prior to that, they were just you would have learned about them in a botany course or whatever, but they weren't really treated as their own separate thing, which they are. They're not plants. They're yeah, you still can't. You still can't even learn mycology in in most universities in the world. Um, the closest you'll get is like a plant pathology and environmental microbiology degree. Um, but we're still even creating specialized mycology degrees for people to go get um, because it's that it's that fresh in into our uh, culture. Wow. And I guess that probably explains why a lot of the big figures in sort of like at least popular mycology are maybe self-taught for the most part. Like Paul Stamets, he doesn't have a PhD. You didn't get like a PhD in mycology or anything, right? Like a lot of you guys are just kind of self-taught. And that's, I guess that maybe explains why. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, somebody has to pioneer it and, and build protocols and all these kinds of things. You know, there's a lot of, uh, um, a lot of academic scientists that have like bridged, bridged gaps, um, as far as that stuff goes. But, you know, um, those of us that have been out here, um, just getting to know these organisms ourselves, uh, seem to have be making the biggest strides. Gotcha. So let's maybe back up for a second. Just what do you, when you meet someone at a party, like, how do you describe kind of what you do to them and how, how do you think about what you do and your place in the world? Um, I mostly like, uh, people ask what I do. I'll say, um, I operate an ecological research business. Um, I think that that like in one, in like one short word, if that's all I have to say to them encompasses the majority of what I do. Um, so, uh, my biggest, um, joy in life is to research ecology. I feel like nature is a language. I feel like everything is patterns. And I feel like if I can do puzzles, then I can figure out what life is trying to tell me. Um, so I've been working on deciphering um, this living language uh, for um, like 11 years um, since I recognized this kind of concept. Um, 
And the best way that I can do that is through ecological research. Um, so I study algae, I study fungi, I study insects, I study plants. Um, I don't really study animals that much, but um, I'm starting to um, study them a little bit more because I'm starting to have the framework to understand their life cycles. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I could have studied plants or, or animals first if that was my passion, but I tell people that uh, mushrooms are the hooked on phonics of ecological literacy um, because they have so many relationships with other organisms that they, that if you're learning about a mushroom, you're going to end up learning about the tree that it's associated with. If you're learning about, you know, this, uh, mushroom that grows on manure, you're going to learn about the animal that's associated with. And there's so many more inter intricate relationships that I could go on forever about, but, um, it kind of helps you to learn more about other things. So, um, research is the premise. Um, and, uh, for the past, you know, since 2015, I've been mostly, um, utilizing mushroom farming, foraging, and, uh, uh production of different mushroom products, um, to fund the research. Um, because I, I don't necessarily, it's like, it's my own philosophy, my own personal, um, uh, uh feelings, but I don't necessarily want to take a bit, a bank loan to, to do my work. Um, if I could figure out how to do it more close to nature and close to community, I feel like that may be a little bit more sustainable and regenerative. So, um, yeah. And you also, I guess that means that you kind of get to research whatever you want. Whereas if you were trying to get like, I don't know, a grant or something from the NIH, they will only give you grants for a very specific thing. And if you're funding your research through selling like various mushroom products or events or whatever, then you can kind of research whatever the hell you want, which is probably very freeing and empowering. I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah I've been able to cover a lot of territory. I mean, as, as we talked about before uh, the podcast and um, as I'm sure we'll dip into, I've been able to cover a lot of territory um, with that freedom. Um, yeah. But what kind of got you like hooked into mushrooms at the beginning, you know, like 11 years ago? Um, what kind of like set you off down the path? Um, so when I was younger, um, I had my own apartment at 17. I dropped out of school at 16. So I was just doing a lot of uh, exploration at that time. I was just serving tables and hanging out with my girl. Um, I learned how to grow hydroponic plants. Um, and uh, I was just doing a, lo a lot of exploration of the only landscape that I had really free reign over, which was my mind. Um, so like I'm 17 years old, I'm paying rent, I'm living in this little apartment, I'm thinking about my future. Um, I dropped out of high school and uh, I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, everybody's like one in three black kids in the United States, black men in the United States goes to jail. That should happen to me. Like, you know what I mean? So like that even reduces my, my ability to be hireable. So I'm just like, yo, what am I going to do out here? Um, so I don't, I don't own land. I, uh, you know, I live in rural Pennsylvania. So unless you really know how to put on a facade when you walk around outside, you can't just be yourself. Like, well, maybe more now than when I was younger, but you can't just go be yourself, especially if you're like me. Is it pretty, is it pretty, I've never even been there. Is it like pretty redneck or what's, what's the vibe? Yes. There? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's redneck. And, and, and where I live, um, the rednecks love to emphasize that they're redneck. Um, and like, I have lots of redneck friends. Like, so I mean, like, I'm like, I feel comfortable saying that. Like some people may think like a lot of people in the U S think that everything is like, is like rude or racist or this or that. 
when I go to different countries, I've been traveling around the world my whole life. When I go to different countries, you'll be like, yo, people from Nigeria are like this. And if they're like that shit, then you're just like, yo, haha, they're like that shit. Like if you're like, yo, people, like people from the US are like this shit. And I'm just like, yeah, we're fucking like that shit. You know what I mean? Like, so, but like here you say something and then you'll be like, like, you could be like, yo, brown people got brown skin. And they'll be like, oh my God, you're so racist. And I'm just like, suggest that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's definitely um, a bit of oversensitivity. Yeah. So, uh, um, I kind of lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, we were talking about like rural Pennsylvania. And so you, you were kind of like, you, is, did you just start kind of foraging for mushrooms there? Or we were talking about how you kind of got into mushrooms in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was just like, it was a matter of circumstances. So like, I, uh, I, I wanted to explore, I wanted to learn more things and I really didn't have anywhere else to explore but my mind. So that's what I was trying to say. Like, I didn't really feel like I didn't know nature. My parents didn't take me out hiking or going to camping or anything like that. So I didn't really know what to do if I was to go in a forest. Um, so I spent a lot of that time just like meditating and listening to music and stuff like that um, and exploring my internal landscape. So that's what I was uh, getting at, um, which led me to psychedelics and uh, psychedelic mushrooms. So um, also where I live in, in uh, central Pennsylvania, um, there's a lot of like uh, a lot of the kids in my generation um, like the, that are into the same kind of things that I'm into, their parents were like dead lot heads. Like they used to go run around with the grateful dead and all that kind of stuff. So there ended up being like a lot of like good shit around where I was living. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I tried mushrooms when I was younger and, um, they really opened my eyes. Like I grew up Catholic. My dad was in the military. My mom worked for the government. Like my perception of reality was like very, very controlled by other people's ideas. Um, and I thought that if I didn't listen to these other people's ideas and I went into like the wild or into nature that I would be damned to hell and like, I would be doing the wrong thing and I wouldn't be supporting my nation and like all of these kinds of things. So, um, the exploration of these substances was like very, very taboo, um, and very mind opening. So like, as I, as I explored the mushrooms, I realized that my mind was filled with other people's ideas and they weren't necessarily the best ideas. I'm like, why am I living my life this way? Like, why have I decided to like not do the things I want to do? Because I thought that like it was the right thing. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, so I'm yeah. just like That's really getting into the nooks. And, yeah. I'm like really getting into the nooks and crannies of it. And um, um, from that point, the biggest message of those of the psychedelic mushroom experience was like, know the source of what you're consuming. Like, like straight up from like, the TV show I'm watching, who produced that shit? Who funded it? Like, cause like, what's right. their MO? Like, it's are they trying to, yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, who's, who produced these clothes? Who, who, where did this food come from? Am I supporting slave labor? Like, are, am I, did, 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 am I supporting massive amounts of carbon to get this food from one country to another country? Is, is it making a bunch of carbon in the atmosphere? Like, like, is it sprayed with chemicals? Like I started really thinking about all of these things. And then I got to like, yo, where did this mushroom come from that I just ate in my mouth? Like had like little bits of dust on the bottom of it and shit like that. And I started to realize like people grow them on like manure. And I'm just like, yeah. yo, I got manure all over these yeah, things. Like, they're not, mushrooms, yeah. Yeah, like nobody, like back in the day, like people weren't cleaning them. They were leaving as much weight on it as they can. So like a lot of times they'll have like manure on it and stuff. And I'm just like, that's gross. Like I'd rather do this myself. Um, so uh, yeah, I started growing mushrooms and, from there, um, develop my skills and cultivating all the other things that I wanted to consume myself, you know, from that like, 
like food to music to content and all sorts of stuff. That's crazy, man. I mean, it's like one day you're sitting at home in your little ass apartment in Pennsylvania. And then like 10 years later, you're, you were in fantastic fungi, right? So it's like, you're, you're, you're like on Netflix and like teaching like all these people around the world. It's quite a, quite a story. Um, pretty impressive stuff. What is the origin of the name? I mean, I know myco, obviously, like mycology, mushroom, and then the the symbiotics part. Is that like a symbiotic relationship between two organisms? Is that kind of where that comes from? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. like a hundred percent what it means. Um, and uh, the name I pulled um, after a really intense LSD experience that I had, um, which I distilled into this this. Uh, understanding that homeostasis can only be achieved via symbiosis with local systems, both ecological and social. Um, I had that experience. Um, and then shortly after that, I started to realize um, as I was practicing permaculture design, which, which is a whole systems design science and encompasses a lot of different things that I do. Um, I was putting all my work on the internet and all my mushroom content got the most reactions and the most views. So I, uh, I, I utilize that word myco and then symbiotics to just put an emphasis on the fact that um, that mushrooms have a lot of these symbiotic relationships. But on a macroscopic scale, my business is operating in symbiosis with other businesses, with our ecology, with our social systems and uh, anything else that we're interacting with. It's a good way to look at it. And it's certainly not how most people look at it. Uh, I wish they would. So kind of along that journey, I mean, did you ever have any crazy um, like mishaps? Like did you forage for something and accidentally eat a poisonous mushroom or anything crazy like that? Or was it mostly uh, mishap free? Um, mostly mishap free. I mean, I got bit by a dog like in one of my journeys <laughs> like the other day or like a couple weeks ago. Um, and uh, that was pretty crazy. Um but uh, no mishaps, never ate a poisonous mushroom or anything like that. Because I, th- um, I think that is probably like the number when I watch videos of people, like including yourself on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, where all these people are going out foraging. I'm like, dude, I'm sure I would fuck that up somehow. And I'd probably end up just like puking my guts out somewhere. Um, so I get what is what is maybe your advice for someone who, you know, sees the content that like you and some of these other like mushroom influencers, for lack of a better word, produces and kind of wants to get into it, but like doesn't really know where to start. Well, um, regionally, if you're in the U.S., um, there are mushroom there are mushroom clubs. Um, so you can look at the North American Mycological Association and um, online and find your local mushroom club um, and join it. And they usually do region uh, uh, monthly forays if, if if applicable. So right now I'm in Southern California. Um, the season used to be from like November to February. Um, now it's maybe or like used to be maybe from like October to like March and now it's maybe like December to February if they're lucky. Um, so just, like, why is that just cause of like global warming or what? Why? Is um, it yeah, it's been dry that? over here. There's been like mad fires. Like, yeah. um, a lot of, I mean, we're seeing this, I, I did a tour of the U S in August. Um, and, uh, there's been a lot of, um, urbanization in our country without, um, any respect shown to our ecology or any, any like mind of the ecology in our designing. So a lot of people are designing neighborhoods, but not thinking about the environment in its entirety. Um, and we're using up a lot of water and our wastewater treatment facilities are not ideal. 
we're dumping millions of gallons, hundreds and billions of gallons of raw sewage across our country into the water, into the into the oceans and the rivers. But we're not like re- like we're like we're sucking up water that should be going more further and uh, uh, and it's not really getting to the places that it needs to get to. So um, it's getting dry. Yeah. So cities are drinking up water and it's not going as where it used to go. Um, so that's the case right now. Um, and then on top of that, global warming. So um, just environments are shifting at this point. Like since I was born in this world, people were like, by this year, if we don't change like what we're doing, something will happen. Like I remember being in school, we used to have this like little show in the morning in middle school called Channel One News. And it was just like news for kids. And they were like, by 2025, like this shit will be extinct by like by 2030, like we'll run out of this. And I'm just like, is anybody paying attention to this? Like we'll be like 30 years old. Like, like I'm trying to live. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so like I've just had an emphasis on that and just like, like for me, it's like not unsettling as much as it is for other people, but like the oceans are, ocean levels are changing, you know, um, certain areas are turning into deserts, certain areas that, that were once very cold are now becoming more temperate. Um, so, you know, you can keep all of those things in mind in the way that you navigate the world nowadays. Um, but yeah, it is getting dry. So getting back to all of it, cause I'll rant forever. Oh yeah. Uh, you go to the mushroom club and then, yeah. um, you can <laughs> hopefully not pick anything poisonous and just learn from folks that have more experience than you. Yeah. That, um, I mean, that's, yeah. The, that's a really good idea. And then there's also like iNaturalist and seek, um, which are applications you can get on your phone, um, that you can utilize and more people are adding pictures to on a regular basis, which is increasing a database of, uh, um, that we can utilize. So you can just like use your phone camera, um, and, uh, and point it at a mushroom. Um, and it'll, uh, utilize a database of everybody that's been uploading the pictures onto these applications. Oh, and it'll tell you what it is. It'll be like, this is, uh, this mushroom. Yeah. Um, and then that's why I always recommend like having a community, like you can go back to your mushroom club and be like, Hey, look at this picture that I saw. Or like, um, maybe groups on Facebook. There's a lot of really good groups on Facebook. Um, just to like double check. Cause like, don't let a phone, you know, say that without an edible mushroom check first. Yeah, yeah. Cause I know some of them, it's like, they look super similar. Like the difference between the edible one and the, and the poisonous one is like not that clear to the naked eye, unless you really know what you're looking for. So man, getting back to kind of what you're doing with your company, you kind of describe it as a, you know, environmental research company basically that is self-funded and we'll get into the self-funded thing later. But in terms of research, um, like what's kind of the high area of research? What are maybe some of the more interesting areas of focus that you've been researching maybe more recently? Um, more recently, I've been doing molecular analytical research. So um, that it looks like DNA barcoding, DNA sequencing um, for species identification. Um, and why and- is that like to, you know, the non-scientists, what is sort of the utility of that? Is it just to kind of categorize different species of mushrooms? So that way we kind because there are a lot of maybe uncategorized species out there. Is that kind of the idea or? Yeah, there's a lot of undescribed species of mushrooms. Like most people can find a new species of mushroom in their backyard. And when I say new species, I'm not like, I'm not, I don't mean like a, a, a species that just emerged out of evolution or something. I mean like a species that hasn't been described um, in, in our scientific literature. Um, so, um, with DNA barcoding, uh, with molecular analytics, we can, um, uh, sequence the genes that we use to identify fungus. 
um, you know, for plants, for animals, uh, for uh, um, fungi, we have different genes that we use as the um, uh, gene for identification of that of that organism. So anyone in the whole world will sequence that same gene that's found in those mushrooms, but those genes are different for each mushroom. So we can utilize them to barcode or categorize them. So um, same with plants, same with animals. Um, and uh, uh, we do this and we can say, we can reference this international database online called NCBI um, and say, oh, nobody has ever uploaded this onto the database. This is a species that's undescribed to our literature. Um, then you can go across uh, uh, around uh, about describing it. So um, we just did this in Oaxaca, um, looking at undescribed species of psilocybin mushrooms um, uh, that are utilized by the Zapotec uh, uh, peoples in uh, um, San Jose del Pacifico area. Um, so that was really interesting. I've also been able to do this in, Pu in Puerto Rico um, for a significant amount of mushrooms that are undescribed there. Um, yeah, and that's and for me. That's really like like a joy. Like yeah. that's just really something that it's got to be. I mean, when you like do the sequencing and then you upload it to the database and you realize that you've discovered something new, that's got to be a bit of a rush. You probably feel pretty accomplished. Yeah, I, I haven't really had that rush too many times, but it's something that I seek to find more of. Yeah, but that's where I gotta sell some more mushrooms so I can afford <laughs> to do it. <laughs> so, okay, let me ask you this then. Um, you were talking about these sort of new species or strains of psilocybin-containing mushrooms. This is, you know, kind of something that if you want to generate controversy online, all you have to do is like post some status about like, are the different strains different or are they not? People have very strong opinions on this. Some people like Hamilton Morris say that pretty much all the mushrooms are the same, like the only, at least the same from a subjective experience. Like they might have different concentration levels of psilocybin, but other than that, there is no entourage effect. And if, you know, what, what is sort of your take on that? Like, are there significant differences between the different species of psychedelic, psychedelic mushrooms from a subjective effect in humans or are they all kind of the same? All right, so if you are a Western scientist that has to follow everything technically and can only talk about things if they have peer-reviewed research papers, then all mushrooms are the same unless they have different percentages in their analytical chemistry tests. Um, so you hear, see that little robot thing I hit there, but yeah. uh, like a lot of people I meet, like a lot of scientists I meet like are straight up just like, like the fuck, like the dudes from Star Trek that don't have any emotions or stuff like that. Like, like they can't like have their own thoughts unless it's like a peer reviewed thought or something like that. Like, um, and, and what does this mean? So like different species of psychedelic mushrooms have different levels of different compounds in them. Um, entourage effect. Um, this is like the effect that the other compounds have on the main compound. This is something that we know from cannabis. Um, so cannabis has THC as the main psychoactive compound, which with ancillary cannabinoids and terpenes um, and other uh, compounds that are lesser known that seem to affect our biological chemistry um, and modulate the effect of the THC. Um, so that's how we get different strains that make us feel different ways um, as far as cannabis goes. So people ask um, is this something that's also the case with uh, psilocybin? Um, so as far as like the cultivated varieties go of uh, psilocybin cubensis, 
um, as we have seen um, from the Oakland uh, psychedelic uh, uh, cups, the, the, the psilocybin cups, um, that they are producing different levels of compounds. So you can buy, you know, mushrooms from one guy um, and have it be way stronger than mushrooms from the other guy. And they're both uh, psilocybin cubensis. Um, and so the analytical scientists will say, well, you know, that's just because the psilocybin content was higher. So if you just get a chemical test, for all of them, like you get with your cannabis, if you're in a legal state, it all has like a percentage on it. It says this is this much THC. So the user can say, oh, this will probably make me feel this way. Um, or I only want so some some users really only use like a specific milligram of THC per per dosage. So um, uh, some people may only want a specific milligram of psilocybin per dosage. So if they were to get a mushroom that has a higher percentage, um, that more analytical mind might go to like saying like, I'm only going to eat this much of this mushroom instead of going to my regular two gram dose or something. Um, so as far as like wild mushrooms go and, and like as all of the psychedelic mushrooms go in, in general, um, the psychedelic experience experience is a very personal experience and, um, and it's a very mystical experience. So um, you, you, you remember when I said the mushrooms made me think, uh, know the source of what you're consuming. So in my mind, I would want a psychedelic mushroom that grew in a pristine, wild, natural environment versus a mushroom that was like grown in a lab and handled with gloves and like all this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Just like, like while I'm tripping, I would just be like thinking about that shit really hard. You know? <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I've even had, even just like at a lower level than that, sometimes I feel like the person that I get the mushrooms from affects the trip. Like just mm -hmm. the general vibe of the person that gave me the mushrooms. I'm like, man, that, that dude seemed kind of sketch. Like, why am I tripping on these mushrooms from him? Yeah. Uh, versus if it's someone that you really know and trust, it's like, seems to be a little bit more uh, relaxing. Mm -hmm. But on the on the compound level, are there any besides psilocybin or psilocin? Are there other compounds that you suspect have an impact on the trip? Like I know there's talk of uh, I think it's baocysteine or baocysteine or something. Um, are, is there anything that you think is particularly worth maybe investigating in the future? Uh, yeah, baocysteine or baocysteine, um, and then there are also. Uh, a lot of ancillary compounds that we're starting to find through magnetic resonance. I think that there may be more species specific, unique compounds that we find in uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Um, but I also believe that, uh, that other compounds can be utilized from other functional mushrooms to create more of these entourage effects with the psilocybin mushrooms. So, um, so you know, not, like, not something in the psilocybin mushroom, but adding another mushroom to the, and this has been done, Paul Stamets stack has like other things in it. And, you know, you see people stacking all the time. Um, so maybe this is a good segue into the subject of functional mushrooms. A um, few questions there. So in general, you know, functional mushrooms are super hot right now, right? Like you walk into any like health food store and there's just like a million functional mushroom products. And uh, the way that they're sold and marketed is that they can help you with everything. You know, they, this one makes you sleep. This one makes you horny. This one makes you smarter, whatever. Um, obviously, I'm sure that some of those things are true. What do you, but obviously there's also a lot of like marketing kind of hype and maybe some BS around that as well. Like, what do you think from your perspective are the most legitimate use cases for functional mushrooms? And maybe on the flip side, 
Are there any things that you see being claimed about functional mushrooms that you think is BS and should maybe be called out? Um, at this point, like I don't have my head like super in like to like see what everybody's marketing and how yeah. they're marketing and things like that. Right. You're focused um, on your own thing. Yeah. But, uh, um, a lot of these mushrooms do have significant effects. So, um, one of the things that you're going to have to realize is like, if you just go get some mushroom capsules and, um, you take them for a month or something like that, you may not see the benefits of these mushrooms. Um, some of these research studies are over like, um, some of the research studies that we reference that say, you know, mushrooms are inhibitive of cancer or things like this comes from like places in Asia where people ate mushrooms their whole life, like almost right. right. So a month may not do it. And then also a lot of these capsules that you get, like they may not really have a significant dose of the mushroom either. Right. Or it could just be some low grade bullshit that is just not very potent. So you really got to kind of know your source. Um, Yeah. Um, you want to like get mushrooms close to the source and you want them to be fresh, you know, as freshly harvested as possible. Um, mushrooms are, um, absorptive of radio radiation. Um, this is something that a lot of people don't know, but if you've been in a, in a situation where you may have been irradiated, if you can access a significant amount of fungal mass that is not irradiated, you can eat that and shit out the radiation from in, huh. in that fungal material and that fungal mass. It's very absorptive of radiation. Um, there's significant research showing, um, and there's even fungi that are starting to grow on the inside of uh, nuclear reactors eating radiation um, through melanin. Uh, so there's like all sorts of interesting um, um, things that they're doing. Um, um, but the reason I say that is like, if you're getting, you know, mushroom powder, that's like traveled all around the world through airports and like customs and like, you know, I, some radiation there. Yeah. And the, like, that's just me being real tripped out. Cause like at this point, like I'm super sensitive. I'm here for the long run. I'm trying to get to a hundred years. I know that like, that like, the things that we think of on a daily basis that we might not put much attention into, like what we eat, like, Oh, I'm going to eat this hard food or this hard candy, or like, I'm going <laughs> to keep this phone in my pocket right in the same spot every single day, like over long stretches of time, those things that you just did on a daily basis, you might not think anything of, they have bigger effects. So like, I'm really here for the long run and I'm like trying to be mindful of all these kinds of things. Dude, it's um, totally true. And the crazy thing about all that stuff is that because it takes such a long time, there's really no way to study it because like you can't, you're not going to run a study the last 50 years. Right. And if you are, we're not going to find the results for another 50 years. And a lot of that stuff with like the radio frequencies and the routers and the cell phone radiation, like, I mean, I've read all the research saying that it doesn't really cause problems, but there's a part of me that thinks the same thing. Like, well, what about over the course of 50 to 75 years? Like, it's probably good. We haven't even had these things for that long. They're all brand new. Um, so on the getting back to the functional mushroom thing, um, just looking at your website and kind of the, a lot of the content you post, you're interested in a lot of stuff, but it seems like you're kind of particularly hot on cordyceps. Is that maybe fair to say? Like you, you wrote a whole book about how to cultivate them and you have some different cordyceps products, including a cordyceps hot sauce that I kind of want to try. What yeah. is, what is uh, so cool about cordyceps? Can you kind of like yeah, cordyceps? cordyceps are the coolest. Cordyceps are the coolest. Um, yeah, they're an enzymopathogenic fungi. I mean, I can't say they're the coolest fungi. Say that, say that word again. What is that word? 
entomopathogenic. They're pathogens on entomo insects. Entomo means insect as far as like scientific words go. Okay, um, so they that means they grow on insects? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they grow in and on insects. Um, so they usually take over the muscular system of these insects, grow through them, eating their organs and things like this, and then move them into a position where it may be beneficial for the mushroom to release itself into the environment so the spores can be ejected. Um, and they're part of a group of parasitic fungi that include even fungi like ergot that parasitizes grass seeds. Um, it produces interesting compounds like lysergic acid amide. Um, so this group, hypo, uh, hypocreals, that started parasitizing plants and fungi and, and insects, um, uh, produced interesting compounds to live inside of these other organisms that seem to be very um, intriguing for us when we consume them. Um, so cordyceps, the ones that I grow and sell, cordyceps militaris, um, is very prevalent in the Appalachian mountain range, um, which I'm so lucky to live um, on in the foothills of uh, in uh, central Pennsylvania. And um, it grows on moth pupa for the most part. But this mushroom, Cordyceps militaris, is the most successful cordyceps, um, of which we know there are hundreds, um, over 400 described species of cordyceps. Um, that uh, Cordyceps militaris is the most successful, growing on over 50 different species of insects. Um, so I think that because it can eat so many different insects, um, most of them are specialized to just one. Most of the different species of cordyceps just grow on one insect. Um, this one grows on so many, so I think it's one of the reasons why it takes to artificial substrate so well. Um, so we cultivate it on a uh, on a synthetic insect, so to speak, uh, which is just a rice substrate that is nutrified with um, different organic amendments. Um, so so yeah, does, that, does that mean that like cultivation of cordyceps? in terms of like humans cultivating them, is this a pretty new thing? Um, yeah. It sounds like you would have, before you knew how to create this sort of artificial insect on this rice substrate, you would have basically had to like grow them on insects, which is probably not the most pleasant thing. And like, there wasn't even like that much like anthropological utilization, uh, historically of, uh, of cordyceps, like for a long period of time. Like we know, in Tibet, they've been utilizing cordyceps for a couple thousand years, but there's not been like much more around the world for people to even be so inclined to, to do that. Um, so, uh, yeah, since like the 80s in Thailand, uh, then it's expanded out into like, you know, Vietnam, Korea, China, Japan. Um, and then it wasn't until um, I uh, received a cordyceps at my first festival that I hosted in uh, Pennsylvania. Um, somebody found one in the forest on location where I was hosting the festival and they gave it to me and, um, I took it to my lab and I was able to get a clone from it. And, um, you know, I looked all over the internet. There was like little to no literature in English. And if there was any literature in English, it was a translated Asian research paper. Um, and, uh, nobody, everybody told me I couldn't do it. Nobody even cared to take the culture except for my one buddy in Michigan, Ryan Paul Gates of terrestrial fungi. Um, and, uh, I, co- I corresponded with him and, uh, we figured out how to grow them together, uh, over the internet over the course of a year. Um, and then, um, in 2016, uh, I had a really good mushroom for uh, fall foraging season and I, I foraged enough mushrooms that I could, um, I could free myself for two months. So I didn't have to work for two months because I had enough money from foraging mushrooms so you're foraging and then selling these mushrooms? Yeah. 
Who do you and sell? I'm, who do you sell these mushrooms to? I mean, like farmers market or to like people that want high end rare mushrooms or. Like well, now, just- now the market is insane. Like my network is is stupid. I can sell mushrooms to fucking Kalamazoo, who, who wherever. <laughs> literally, I I was literally just in Kalamazoo. Like it's not even like some crazy like yeah. one off thing. Um, but like uh, back in the day, it was just like local farmers markets and restaurants. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, now it's like wholesalers, people that are trying to make products, like all sorts of things anywhere. Um, but uh, yeah, so back then I was just selling to restaurants and stuff. And I forwarded myself two months and I literally never in my life had afforded that much of my own time. And, uh, and since I was a kid, like, like, like people don't realize how much freedom you have when you have to think about a bunch of shit, you know, which, which you can do. Like the pandemic was wasted on the young, as they say, you know, yeah, the pandemic was really liberating, but like on another, but just to not get too caught up. Um, I used those two months to write a book on everything I was doing with cordyceps and I released the first piece of English literature on cordyceps cultivation in like January 2017. So badass. Um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's badass as fuck too. It is badass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so on cordyceps, so that's, man, they, they must be even once you have the knowledge, like probably more difficult to grow than, you know, your standard mushroom. What is it? What is like a full, I don't know, a full cordyceps mushroom? go for if you're selling it it's got to be pretty um, right now in the u.s you can get between six to eight hundred dollars a pound for non wholesale that's wholesale like for non uh organic cordyceps so, so like for wholesale wow yeah like direct to consumer so a consumer is probably paying like 1500 or something maybe double that yeah but like not many consumers are buying like a pound of cordyceps right right people are usually buying like an ounce max or is just buying it already infused into another product yeah all right so let yeah let's talk about the products then i mean so that's the history of cordyceps and how they grow and what makes them interesting but subjectively like in the human body what is kind of interesting about them what do you think that they do to us and why would someone want to consume them cordyceps mushrooms containing cordycepin can increase blood oxygen levels 20 percent um so if you're at high altitudes this is incredible wow Um, really any sort of athlete right yeah any endurance training um like if any working out um if you have sickle cell anemia if you have emphysema i'm not saying that it'll like cure you or do anything but like you might need some more blood like oxygen in your blood and cordyceps can uh, have cordyceps have research stating that they can increase blood oxygen levels. And do you know, sorry to cut you off, but like, do you know, is this sort of an acute effect? Like you take a bite of cordyceps and this happens over the course of a few hours, or is this something you have to take cordyceps for, you know, weeks in order to get, um, you know, just like I said with anything, like, I'm like, like you take it once and it's not necessarily like, like, unless you're taking like pure, like, like these pure compounds from the mushrooms, they'll have way more of a biological effect than just like eating the mushroom. But as far as like eating the mushroom goes, like I'm talking like, like long-term, like is in like frequency, but like cordyceps is like, you don't want to eat a lot of it. Um, like a gram of, a gram of dry cordyceps a day is a significant amount, um, for, uh, for the effects that you're going to want to see. And like, you know, after the first week, um, for most people is when they will start to notice that these kinds of effects, um, so blood oxygen level increases one, what are some of the other effects? 
Um, some of the other stuff would be uh, um, they're anti they're antiviral, um, they're uh, antiretroviral. Um, there's research showing that uh, cortisepin and cortimin can inhibit HIV one reverse transcriptase. Whoa. Um, a lot of people, most people look for cordyceps for um, the energy effect. So cordycepin is a molecule. It's an uh, uh, adenosine-based molecule, um, and uh, it is very similar in its structure to adenosine triphosphate, which is our um, uh, cellular energy molecule. Um, and it's so similar that it can provide us similar functions on a cellular level. So um, and this is something that's providing us energy on a cellular level. Um, it's also a mushroom that, that's producing adenosine. Um, so adenosine is highly utilized in um, emergency rooms for um, different uh, applications of heart um, uh, disorders and things like this. Um, so um, it's producing some fairly bioactive compounds. Um, it also produces nucleobases. Um, there's research showing that um, it can be protective of DNA mutations um, and then it has aphrodisiac effects. So, um, I think it's really interesting in the sense of like, like, um, uh, curating healthy DNA and then, you know, having these aphrodisiac effects of like, um, making the user inclined to, 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 to share that DNA. Um, I, li I like how you put that, making the user inclined to share that DNA. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Makes sense. Dude, this is interesting. I, so what do you think, do you sell um, on your website if someone wants to, you know, start getting on the cordyceps train? Should they buy like a product from your store? Is that kind of the best way to get started? Or should they buy yeah. a book and start growing cordyceps in their closet? What do, what do you both. think? Yeah, yeah, both. Yeah. Both. Yeah. So um, get, get our, our cordyceps cacao. That's one of my favorite products. Um, our ceremonial cacao made with uh, Guatemalan cacao from a Mayan women's collective uh, down near Lake Atitlan. That's not so good. Yeah, I love cacao. Oh, it's super good, and it's infused with the local Appalachian mountain range honey um, and our mushrooms. So try that out, or um, hit up our uh, tincture, which is just great to just get it into a whole bunch of different things. You know, put it in your drinks, um, and then grab the book. So you know, while you're putting the tincture in your water for the day, you can like kick back and read the book figure out how to grow some yourself um, because, you know, everybody can have like a little, a couple cordyceps jars growing um, in their house, like, you know, next to the air conditioner or something like that. They like to be real cool um, and, uh, you know, grow their own supply um, for the month or something. So is um, it, is it much more difficult to grow um, cordyceps than other mushrooms or are they all kind of about the same level of difficulty? Not necessarily. I mean, it's like, it's more about your competence level. Um, if you can like follow instructions on a recipe, um, then you, then you should be good. Um, but unfortunately most people do not know how to follow instructions. It's <laughs> true. It's tough, man. Yeah. The, the infamous Ikea manual, you know, it's like, how do you put this shit together? If there was, um, what would you say is the best starter mushroom? If someone wants to grow their mushrooms, like what mushrooms should they try growing first? Um, All right. So if you're just starting to grow mushrooms and you like want to just buy a mushroom bag and grow it, um, get reishi. It'll grow in the bag. You don't have to open it. You don't have to worry about spraying it. You don't have to do anything. You just leave it in the bag and watch it grow. Um, once it's done growing, you open the bag and you pull the mushrooms out. Um, from there, you might want to go on to like a oyster or a lion's mane. Both of them are, I think, about equal as far as like 
um, difficulty to produce the mushroom from it. Um, they're very easy to grow mushrooms out of. You just poke a hole in the bag after you get it and spray it like two times a day, big mushroom will pop out. Um, if you're trying to grow mushrooms um, yourself from uh, like grow the mycelium out yourself um, onto some material, um, I would recommend growing oyster mushrooms on coffee grounds or cardboard. Hmm. Interesting. What do you think, like, in terms of the functional mushrooms, is cordyceps maybe the most interesting one to you? Or, I mean, I'm not trying to ask you, like, pick your favorite, but cordyceps is obviously up there. Was lion's mane, you know, maybe in second place? Are there any other maybe less commonly known functional mushrooms that you think are super interesting that people are maybe sleeping on? Truffles. Like the Amsterdam truffles or? No, what? not like psychedelic truffles, like gourmet truffles. Really? You yeah. think people are not paying enough attention to truffles? Yeah, I don't think people are paying enough attention to truffles at all. So much so that Just we're importing... from a gourmet perspective or you think they have like other effects? Other effects. I think really? that they're one of the most functional, medicinal, and nootropic mushrooms that exists. Holy I shit. I think that because they hide themselves from us, that people have limited their understanding to them to the really like dr- dramatic ones, like the really fragrant, European, sexy italian ones and and french ones and things like that like and it but they're like so people have been so enamored with with the ones that have already been discovered that we didn't even discover the ones here before we started growing the european varieties in north america so there Um, are like american native truffles yeah 100 percent. there's like so many different types of truffles um there's a small percentage of them that are edible and an even smaller percentage of them that are gourmet but out of the percentage that are edible there's so many unique medicinal applications. Um, so a lot of the more medicinal mushrooms that we see above ground are like mushrooms that can last on trees for really long periods of time because they're exposed to the environment for long periods of time with other organisms that may be trying to eat them or break them down or different things like this. Um, so uh, we these mushrooms are oftentimes producing compounds that can deter these organisms that may be wanting to eat them or, 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 um, you know, uh, in, infect them or things like this. Um, but we, we've yet to really think about what the truffles are dealing with below ground. They have millions of organisms all around them trying to eat, trying to, to infect them, trying to do this, trying to do that. And they're literally chilling. Like they figured out how to exist under the ground. Um, and, and, even command other organisms to come eat them and and take them away somewhere else. How do they do this? You know, what is the relationship? What are they giving these squirrels and, and humans that is so powerful that the humans will train a whole other organism to go find it? You know, like what is so powerful about it is not, it's, it's not just because you can make so much money from it. Like, why can you make so much money from it? Like, why will people pay so much money to get a little shaving of this thing on their food? It's not just because it's like a, fancy thing it's not just facetious there's 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 something behind it it does make you feel good they are aphrodisiacs they are neurologically active truffles do produce anandamide which is a cannabinoid and they don't have an ec uh, an ecs they don't have their own endocannabinoid system so you know they're producing cannabinoids but not able to consume them themselves um, but they have these intricate relationships with other organisms so um, they have incredible volatile aromatic compounds, terpenes, triterpenes, all sorts of esters, alcohols, all sorts of incredibly bioactive compounds. Um, I think that 
I think that truffles um, will be the next wave of nootropic uh, uh, medicine, honestly. Um, and uh, I, I really implore people to explore more um, into North American truffles. Um, I think that we'll find all sorts of medicinal applications and all sorts of novel compounds. Damn it. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Truffles are where it's at. That's where you should focus your energy. Yeah. Um, man, th- this is super interesting. I didn't know I was going to learn that much about truffles today. Wow. Um, so out- outside of fungi, I know you've been doing some interesting stuff with algae. Like, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Is there anything cool going on in the algae world? Yeah. Yeah. Algae is like lit, like super, super <laughs> algae lit. Is fucking lit. Yeah. I mean, I, I think most people, when they think of algae, they might think of spirulina, which is in a lot of like health food stores and you can get it in smoothies, but that's one of, I would imagine probably billions of species and varieties yeah. of algae. Algae and fungi are like the alpha and omega of biology. Like algae is like the first thing producing massive amounts of organic material. And then like fungi is the first thing eating massive amounts of organic material. You know, fungi branches into the super taxon of pisticant. Animals evolve out of fungi. Plants evolve out of algae you know, alpha and omega biology. They literally create life. I think it's crazy. But um, algae have been here, like algae cyanobacteria, they've been here for, you know, billion plus years, like learning how to navigate through this reality and and fitting into all these ecological n- niches. Algae are the pasturage of the sea. They are the what, what the sea creatures graze upon. They are literally the foundation of the food chain. Like as far as like, the food chain all the way up to like the most highest of high organisms go. Algae is the basis of every of the, of all of the food chain. Um, uh, so uh, there's all sorts of really cool algae. I've been really interested in Haematococcus uh, pluvalis. This is an algae that you'll find growing in bird baths. Um, if you ever look in a bird bath and it's all red, it has like a red film in it. Um, that's Haematococcus. This is an algae that has developed a unique mechanism for dealing with getting dried out. Um, or being in a pond that dries out, um, and it turns red. So it grows green while it's like in its vegetative living cycle. Um, and then the pond dries out of water, the bird bath dries out of water. Um, and it's like, oh shit, I'm exposed to full on oxygen and radiation. I might die out. I might dry out and die. My, my DNA may be exposed and destroyed. That's literally like the end of life. You want to make sure your DNA can keep perpetuating. Um, so what it does is it produces this red compound, this red keto carotenoid called astaxanthin. Um, and it is one of the most powerful antioxidants known to man. Um, so this algae produces a couple little droplets of this red oil that it can live off of and it can utilize to protect its, its DNA. And it can literally last for like months and months and months all dried up on the side of a rock until the water comes back. Um, and then it can reinvigorate itself off that astaxanthin oil and start to go back into a vegetative cycle and reproduce again. Um, so we can, we can use this oil ourselves to protect ourselves from solar radiation and oxidative stress, um, which, you know, oxidative stress is one of the biggest inhibitors of, uh, you know, cellular life. Um, uh, oxidate, oxidation and inflammation are the two things that inhibit life in general or age us, um, or, uh, inhibit our nervous system from, um, you know, fun- from proper function. Um, so, so the, that, like that algae super cool to me. Um, and then and is uh, this, at this point, um, is this kind of, uh, a new thing that people are w- realizing or can you kind of already buy maybe supplements based on this 
algae. Yeah, you can already buy supplements based on this algae. The astaxanthin market is some hundreds of, I think astaxanthin market's over a billion dollars annually right now oh, globally. Yeah. Okay, so it's um, already. Yeah, yeah, they're, these are, I mean, like, if, if, if it's not a billion, it's over hundreds of millions. Like, I looked at this recently, I just can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, their um, astaxanthin market is big and growing. And then also, the market for uh, vegan omega fatty acids is growing heavily. So right, uh, people, yeah, I've heard about that. It's yeah, nice. um, a lot of people want their omega omega fatty acids because you need it. Like our, our eyeballs are literally made of like DHA. Um, uh, uh, we need DHA. We need EPA. Um, and uh, if you're not going to be eating lots of fish oil, um, you can get it from where the fish get it from, which is from the algae. Um, and it's very bio, uh, available. So it's like, we don't necessarily need fish to eat the algae in order to get it. Um, we can get it from, uh, the, the, the oil itself. Not like, it's not like grass. Like we need cows to eat grass to get certain B vitamins and things like that from the cows. Like we can't go eat the grass and get the same nutrients they get, but we can eat algae. Right. There's got to be a psychedelic algae out there somewhere. There's a psychedelic lichen. Um, so really? I'm sure that there's a psychedelic algae out there somewhere. Um, the psychedelic lichen might be attributed more to the fungi, the fungus in it. Um, but I'm sure that there's a psychedelic algae out there. There has to be. You know, um, uh, the McKenna Academy just released the information about the psychedelic fish. So what was that psychedelic fish eating? You know what I mean? Right, right. That's true. Yeah. I know that I think Hamilton Morris at one point was talking about some kind of like I don't know if it was a sea sponge. It was like some something that grew underwater that had some form of DMT in it. It was like very weak, but it was still had like a DMT compound. So, I mean, dude, the ocean, we don't, we don't know anything about the ocean. There's still so much under there. I mean, dolphins out, do you think there's, there's whole cultures of, like I've, I've traveled the world my whole life. So I've heard everybody's stories about what they think that life is or what they think that the world is and all this kind of stuff. And I always accept it. Like people have told me, that they think the world is flat, that they think that there's people living in the earth. They think that the world is run by reptiles. People tell me all this kind of stuff. And I'm just like, great. I, I love hearing these stories. But like, um, uh, what were we just talking about? Uh, psychedelic under the sea stuff. Oh, the dolphins. Oh, there's, a, there's a group of people that I met that thinks that, that, um, that dolphins are like this super sentient uh, race that is like a predecessor to humans or like has like been teaching humans for a long period of time. And if dolphins are like mad conscious and shit, you don't think that their ass is getting high? Like, for sure. sure. Well, it's like the stone ape hypothesis, but for the, the sea equivalent, you know, like what mm -hmm. were they eating down there? And yeah. dolphins are smart as hell, man. They have that whole language of the clicks. I'm sure you know about the John Lilly experiments where he was giving Dude. LSD to dolphins. Dude, I teach a class. I teach a class low key on metaprogramming the human biocomputer. I only teach it at psychedelic conferences. What is that? What kind of stuff do you go into in that class? Oh, I go into like just like full on recognizing the 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 human body and the human mind, like the brain, as a biological computer and a biological technical interface for consciousness. Um, so, just getting individuals to recognize themselves as consciousness and consciousness as the operator of the biological computer, um, and and utilizing technological uh, uh, references to kind of give us the framework to understand biology because this is the way I understood biology. So I'm just like, 
all right, I can see that I'm operating this computer right here. This computer is a brain that needs an operator. It doesn't do anything without me telling it what to do and operating and, and putting in commands, creating routines and subroutines to create programs. You can look at yourself the same way, uh, a set of, of routines and subroutines that creates programs. And you can be the one that that creates the routines and subroutines. So um, when I first dropped out of school, I started studying quantum physics and I started to realize that most Western scientists were just figuring out consciousness. They're like, just like, we just discovered consciousness and shit. I'm just like, yo, what the fuck have you been doing your whole, like for the past thousands of years? But I'm just like, as far as figuring out, like just figuring out consciousness, like what that means is like that for the first time, we, we, we're, we not only are creating our environment, but we have the ability to intentionally create our environment. So that's kind of what I go into when I talk about metaprogramming. It's like, use your thoughts to create your mental programs. Cause we know that we're a product of our environment. We know that the routines that we follow create our, our brain structure as we're a child. So like your brain is literally in a plastic state of, of neurogenesis as you're a child, the literal wiggles in your brain and shit, like the connections in your brain are determined by what you actually do. Um, so we can utilize this understanding to be the ones that set up the, 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 the environment for the programming of our brain to be more conducive of, 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 of what we want out of reality. Um, so that's kind of what I get at. And, and that's what John C. Lilly was getting at with like, that's why I brought that up because John C. Lilly was one of the first ones that introduced us to that concept of metaprogramming the human biocomputer. Dude, when's the next time you're giving that class? I think I need to make sure I attend. Uh, I'm, I'm working on it. I don't have any, anything on schedule, but right, um, right. I'm, re I'm revising it. I want to get it lit up next for the next time. So did you go, did you go to uh, horizons in Oregon, by the way? Or um, I didn't go to horizons. Um, I just went to the, um, Oakland psychedelic conference. And then I also participated in the, uh, big psych psychedelic conference in Minneapolis. Got it. Okay. Um, well, hopefully one of these days we'll run into each other at a conference. What do you think is going to happen once organs measure 109 kind of goes into effect? And I guess already to some extent there's decriminalization happening specifically in Oregon. Um, is there going to be like an explosion of people growing mushrooms in their closets? Not that there aren't already a ton of them, but um, what, what do you, what is sort of your prediction for the next few years as like these laws start coming online in places like Oregon and likely Colorado this November? Um, as long as the legislation and regulation doesn't, um, you know, uh, like call for everybody has to specifically be consuming this type of mushroom or something like that, um, uh, then I think that more people are going to explore all sorts of different types of psychedelics. So um, we're working with classical psychedelics based on what was explored by the scientists before us, like in the 50s and 60s, like um, you know, this explorer went to Mexico, found this mushroom and brought this mushroom back. And this is the one that we've been working with, but there's so many other mushrooms out there. There's so many other plants out there. Um, so I think that this, we're just, uh, um, scratching the surface. Um, so psychedelics increase nature relatedness. This is something that we see from, you know, peer reviewed research papers. Like we can like go reference research paper says psychedelics increase nature relatedness. So I think, yeah, I think that as more people, um, start to consume these things, more people will feel related to nature, more people will um, start to care about nature, because a lot of people don't feel any sort of relation to nature. You know, they put their shoes on, they go put the air condition on, and the only interface they really have with nature is getting a packaged piece of it in a grocery store. 
um, that is all branded out and everything like that. So um, um, the more people care about nature, um, the more people will act to protect it. Um, and uh, I think that that the passion around these psychedelics and the feelings that people will get from them will be like have people like wanting to try different ones or or um, you know uh, ex- explore. Uh, different variations and different combinations, different uh, pharmacological combinations um, of them. Um, and there's so many other plants and fungi and, and creatures out there that are trippy that are going away because of, of palm oil farms or because of lumber for Ikea and Amazon and things like this. So I think that we're at this really interesting singularity point where people are just starting to trip themselves out hard enough to care about the decisions that they're making because the same people that are tripping right now are the same people that are spending their dollar bills that are destroying the things that they're about to care about. So like, I think that we're going to like see this really interesting transition in, in economy, honestly, um, in like what people are spending their money on, um, what people are spending their time doing. Um, because like, this is a revolution, like seriously, like we just like, we just made it okay for people to take the most powerful mind altering substances um, in a time where people are caught up following other people's ideas. Um, I, I, I tell people that um, if you're not living intentionally with consciousness in your life, then a lot of people will default into a colonial zombie program. Um, so, whatever other people are doing. Yeah. And, and the, and the colonial, and it's running, people are running the defaulted colonial zombie program here in the United States, where if you don't think about what you're doing, then you follow your nation as a nationalist, or even not, even if you're not following your nation as a nationalist, you're following the corporate, uh, um, uh, guide, um, which, which oftentimes is like perpetuating ideas made up by dudes in Rome that wanted to be immortal and shit like that. And, and they fucking did a damn good job because they made it all the way to the fucking United States and we're still using their damn politics and language and shit like that. It's true. It's kind of amazing. Um, yeah, it, it's crazy, man. Like on the one hand, yes, I have the same hopes. At the same time, you know, it's like people, power structures, capitalism, whatever, is very good at co-opting everything. And, you know, we might see like the corporatization of psychedelics. Like, is there something about psychedelics that makes them immune from corporatization um, or commodification? I'm not really sure who, you know, a lot of those, like a lot of the people back in the sixties, you know, they went to Woodstock and everything, but then like 30 years later, they were just, you know, garden variety boomers that were like voting Trump. So I don't know. I guess it's like, I don't know how we can prevent that from happening. I hope that I'm not really sure. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I think a lot of things. Um, <laughs> I bet you do. Uh, the 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 people that tripped out in the '60s laid the framework for us, and like we're going to lay a, a greater framework down for whoever comes next. If it wasn't for those people that tripped out in the '60s, I wouldn't be able to go to a health food store and get organic whatever the fuck, or I wouldn't be able to go to a yoga studio because even if they did burn out and be whatever kind of boomers, a significant amount of people from those generation from that generation made it so that there was like. Uh, some level of industry supporting a more healthy lifestyle for us to take another step forward. Um, so aside from that, um, the military and the CIA did extensive research on psychedelics. And if you go even deeper, you'll find research about people spraying fucking psychedelics across whole towns and shit like that through aerosols to see what will happen for 
mass mind control for as 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 weapons for war. Like so, like a lot of this was during war times where people were literally trying to figure out how to subdue an entire nation and things like that. So there's incredible in depth research on this stuff, and a lot of times people didn't get the results that they wanted to utilize these things as weapons um, because it would make people, you know, care about nature and not want to fight and like, which can be beneficial if you like spray that on a bunch of enemies and they're at war and nobody wants to fight each other and shit like that. Um, but like, I'm not saying that that's the entirety of it because, you know, the Aztecs fucking got geeked on mushrooms and went and fucked each other up. Like, so, and I'm not saying that like the entire, the entire, um, uh, Aztec people or Mexica people did these kinds of things, but I'm not, but I'm not saying that like psychedelics are only conducive of peace and love. Like you can right. go, you know, that dude, me. the guy um, with the Viking hat that ran into the Capitol uh, was, he was like really into psychedelics. Oh, I didn't even know. Yeah. He, he had like tons of Facebook. I think he might've even like guided people through psilocybin ceremonies. Like the dude was, <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, was he was out there for sure. Like he, he was on a lot of shit, not just mushrooms, but uh, yeah, I mean, you can still do psychedelics and be kind of, you know, crazy, maybe not have the right ideas. I don't think that they lend themselves entirely to corporatization. So unless, um, you know, people are creating these synthetic psychedelics or analogs of psychedelics that like, only like like we're entering into a crazy world and i'll just like give you a glimpse like like all right so some psychedelics will give you this multi experience this multi-faceted experience where you have like visual hallucinations and auditory hallucinations and you feel sensations in your body like now we're into the point where people have isolated down to like analogs or compounds that just just makes you feel the sensation in your body or just makes you have the mental trip or just makes you have auditory hallucinations or or all these different things. So um, I, I don't know if there's like some analog or form of psychedelics that could be like more profitable. Like maybe like there's just one that like hits that thing that gets people to stop drinking alcohol or stop smoking cigarettes. And that could be something that could be sold, which mm-hmm. a lot of people are working on the smoking cessation thing. That's like a yeah. big deal. It's still uh, useful, right? right? Yeah. It's, still, it's important. Very, very useful. Um but aside from that, like, I think classical psychedelics or just like whole psychedelics, like if you're going to talk about like whole foods, like, like, like foods that haven't been broken down into their parts, psychedelics that haven't been broken down into their parts, um, I think are anti-corporate. Like, I think that they're really like, like very decentralizing, like in their, in their essence, like they will guide more people towards like not supporting a corporate overlord and like more so supporting a community. Like they're like very inclining of community situations. So like if somebody's like, and then also like, like I don't know many people, like I know people that will take microdoses every day for a while, but like most people don't take microdoses every day forever. Like, and like, I don't know many people that are like tripping every day. I know people that will smoke weed every day. will smoke bowl or smoke a blunt every day. But like, I don't know anybody that's going to go eat mushrooms enough to be tripping every day. No, so like, no, no, no. Like most people, they'll eat mushrooms, then trip really hard one time. And that's it for their life. They're like, yo, I'm good. Like, <laughs> like I learned all yeah. my lessons. Like, you know what I mean? For a year. Yeah, they'll wait a year. They'll wait six months. Yeah. yeah. So, so 
I don't think it really I, lends. I know what you mean. And you know, another interesting thing too is like back in the 60s, mushrooms weren't even really a thing. You know, it was mostly LSD, which is something that you, know, you did need a centralized kind of like command in order to produce because it's like a pretty involved process. This new version of the psychedelic revolution does seem to be a lot more centered around mushrooms, which are very, very easy for your average person to just grow in their closet if they want to. So maybe that in itself like makes it a bit more resistant to corporatization and centralization. So I don't know. But man, we've been talking for a little over an hour. I want to be respectful of your time, man. This has been a super interesting conversation. Um, is there anything else you want to make sure that you kind of mention? Anything you want to leave the listeners with? Um, yeah. Uh, we're dropping a DNA barcoding class. Um, why would you want to learn about DNA barcoding? Check out my Instagram. Check out my social media. You can find me at mycosymbiote, mycosymbiotics. Um, you can check us out at mycosymbiotics.com. Um, and you can learn about why I would encourage you or anybody else in your community to um, get in, get involved with DNA barcoding. So um, that's what I would like to leave people on. And uh, just like I mentioned, you know where to find me. Um, you can also check me out on YouTube at uh, Apex Grower. Um, and uh, yeah, check out our uh, sister company, Certified. Um, you know, get your swag on. Hop about the bed, turn a swag on on a sustainable tip. Um, you know, Certified is... Uh, focused on utilizing, you know, dead stock materials or working with um, new material sciences or um, more biodegradable materials and things like this. So check us out at Certified. Uh, check us out at Microsymbiotics. Um, that's CRTFD for Certified. Um, and uh, yeah, bless up. Awesome. Thanks so much, Will.